Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Welcome to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, conversations with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television here on Movie Beat. You're going to learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and they'll provide you with guests and the information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. Uh, first, I want to say that my guest today returns. It's Mr. John Gaspard, the author and filmmaker, but responsible for Digital Filmmaking 101 uh, with Dan- Dale Newton, and also the books Fast, Cheap, and Written That Way, Fast, Cheap, and Under Control, and we're going to be talking with him in just a moment. Uh, he is a vital source of information, especially when it comes to making movies on a shoestring. And, uh, and so you're going to want to hear what he has to say. We're going to discuss some films and, and different topics, so uh, be sure to stay tuned. If you're listening live right now, please do me this favor. Go ahead, reach out to somebody, call them, tweet right now to somebody, Facebook them, email them, or use your favorite social media means to reach out and get someone else to join us live, to listen live, or to even join us in the chat room. Um, and when you do that, it, it helps extend our reach. It makes uh, the reach of my guest and myself that much further because MovieBeat is really designed to be a resource for you, and that's why I connect you up with uh, professionals who are making it happen, who uh, who are in the trenches, uh, as you may be, uh, because my listeners are A-list listeners all the way down to newbie, first-time filmmakers, and fans, and everyone in between. Uh, and so uh, I always appreciate you listening in. I always appreciate you joining us in the chat room. And I always, always, always appreciate you uh, retweeting uh, the tweets about the upcoming shows or after the fact. Once the show is in the can, so to speak, it's archived at RexSykes.com. That's the official RexSykes Movie Beat site. It's in the interviews blog there. They're all in the archives. There's over 175 hours of professional filmmakers talking about uh, their expertise, directing, producing, casting, writing, acting, uh, script supervisors, cinematographers, they're all there talking about uh, how to make your projects cheaper, faster, smoother, uh, to take the headache out of it so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, that's why they're here, you know, so that uh, it's been called, Movie Beat has been called a master class of filmmaking and TV making, you know, in a box, so to speak. Uh, because these are all available as podcasts or interviews from RexSykes.com. So, and by the way, you can uh, become a, you can subscribe to the official website at the welcome page by hitting the RSS feed. But if you are listening live, you can make us a favorite, or even if you're listening archived, you can make us a favorite. You can make us a friend. You can follow us. Be sure to leave comments about the show in the comment section. Uh, here and at the podcast, you can rate and review them because that helps others who are on the fence or who are discovering this for the first time through Google or they get your email or something uh, about the show. It's their opportunity to read about uh, uh, about what you thought. So uh, it's your opportunity to, to reach out and touch someone. Again, thanks for uh, all of your support, all of your love, all of your reaching out. And all of your questions and, and talk in the uh, chat room. The show is international. We have A-list listeners, again, all the way to newbie and fan listeners, people who've never picked up a camera and don't intend to, but just love uh, what we do and love to find out more about it. Uh, a couple of announcements before I bring John on. Um, there are one or two new articles on the website, not a whole lot. I've been just very, very busy. I have an announcement to make uh, coming up uh, in you know, November, December kind of thing. Uh, the the time zone, the time. There may be a time change in which uh, we go live with Movie Beat. It may occur um, in the U.S. later in the day, uh, just because I have different responsibilities, different things that are coming up, different projects that I'm on, and uh, I may have to shift the time. Uh, another neat thing for fans of Massacre Central High, I have got my buddy. Uh, Daryl Morey, who starred as David in Massacre Central High, and I are going to reminisce on October 1st. 
It's a Friday live on the air about massacre at Central High. People have asked about this. We've been wanting to do it, intending to do it for a long time. We've now been able to schedule that, so that will be coming up. Um, but other than that, let me get to my important guest today. That's Mr. John Gaspard. Again, he's the author of Digital Filmmaking 101. He's a director, he's a filmmaker, he's a producer, and has directed and or produced six low-budget features, including the digital feature Grown Men, which premiered at the National and International Festival and won the Best Fest Best Screenplay Award at the Black Point Film Festival. He directed and co-wrote the award-winning feature film Beyond Bob and directed the science fiction comedy feature film Resident Alien. He's directed features on 16mm digital video, analog video, and produced and directed the first feature film in Super 8mm single sound system. He's got a blog, Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts, and that's fastcheapmoviethoughts.blogspot.com, in which uh, it's been named one of the, the best 50 blogs for movie makers by Movie Maker Magazine and one of the 100 best blogs for film and theater students by bestuniversity.com. So without any further ado, what I'd like to do is bring John back on and have him say hello. And, and hello, John. Hi there, Rex. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Not too bad. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you back. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the last time you were on the show, and you provided a lot of important information at that time, critical information. And if listeners have not yet heard part one, uh, they don't need to listen to these in order, but they can go back and listen to it at any time at RexX.com in the interview blog or as a podcast. But uh, I'm looking forward to your time, and I should say I'm looking forward uh, to your time right here now today. So what's new with you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, last time we were, last time we talked, you said that you were preparing to do another film coming up in the future, or and we didn't talk that long ago. But uh, anything anything new you want to share with us in the meantime? Well, the script is in process, and I've uh, been scouting out the location. It's a script that's written for a specific location, um, so I've just been kind of hanging around that space, looking at all the different nooks and crannies, and figuring out what's going to be the best uh, spaces to use within the building we're using. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, we um, promised people when we came back that we were going to discuss the, uh, you know, some of the elements from uh, your books, Fast, Cheap, and Written That Way, and uh, Fast, Cheap, and Under Control. But before we get into that, and before we get into some of these secrets and how-tos and, and some of the, the, the methods or means or procedures that other people work to to uh, make successful films or make their films successful. Um, what I'd like to ask you, kind of, is, is we were talking about this. We were going to talk about the state of the filmmaking business today. Mm-hmm. So, uh, thoughts on that, sir? Well, you know, it's it's a great time to be someone making films. I think it's uh, a tough time to be someone making films where you're trying to make money at it, uh, which has always been the case. Uh, now it's easier to get your movie out to people, uh, for people to see them. Uh, but in order to actually monetize that, as they say, uh, it's getting harder and harder because there's just so much product, as they call it, out there that to get above all the noise is hard to do. As, and so is there any particular advice or suggestions or thoughts you have you know, for filmmakers today? Well, I can I can just tell you what works for me, and it might not work for other people. Okay. Is that um, when I set out to make a movie, um, I don't set out to make money at it, uh, which takes a huge burden off you right away. Uh, I, you know, a lot of people know how to make movies cheaply. I certainly follow all those rules, but for me, it's the process of making the movie, of working with the crew and the actors and the writing and the editing. That's where I get the great pleasure from. As soon as you try to get into the distribution stream, uh, your movie becomes a product. And it's, uh, it sucks all the fun out of it. So if uh, if you're able to realign your expectations to try and create the best movie you can and get it out through whatever means you can, and you've not put yourself in a situation where you have to get money back, where you have investors who've put in, you know, ten thousand, twenty, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars, if you're not in that situation, uh, then the process I think is uh, a lot more fun and, and uh, rewarding. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, but you made a comment, um, and I don't know if you made it on the show, but that independent films are more dependent than ever. Well, yeah, they're, they're, uh, movies have always depended. Uh, almost any art form depends on an audience. You have to get it to an audience. And uh, it's 
it's harder now just because there are so many more movies. Um, if you look at Paranormal Activity, which is a pretty good example of a of a no-budget movie, <clears throat> it took them, I don't know, a couple of years to get that out. And yes, it did very well, but for every Paranormal Activity, there are, and you're going to have to fill in the blank here, that many more movies that no one has seen yet or heard of yet. And we don't really have any numbers on that. Uh, if you look at studio films, you can f- track them in Hollywood Reporter or Variety, how many films they're making every year and how many are released and how many go to theaters, how many go to DVD. And so you know from the studio system how many movies they're making and, and how many are being released. When it comes to independent film, there's no source for tracking who's making what, who's finished what, where is it ending up, You know, how many movies have been made that are sitting in a drawer somewhere because someone sent them to five, six, ten different festivals were rejected, tried posting online, nobody watched, or didn't even get that far, who almost finished but didn't quite. There's just no way to track it. And so because there's so many new movies out there, it's really hard to break through with yours unless it's really unique, uh, interesting, different. Um, Go ahead. Which just comes back to the point of, uh, with any art form, distribution is always the hardest part because that's when your your baby becomes a product which people may or may not be interested in. Well, there are um, some genres that seem to almost always sell, you know, if not right. domestically, at least overseas. Right, your horror films, your action films, um, those are, are outside of this discussion just because those are, not that they aren't artistic pieces, but, yeah, there's always going to be a market for stuff like that. Well, but but in what you're saying too, I mean, you know, I've never thought about it. I, I got, you know, I guess I just I've always said, you know, there are more movies being made today than ever before, and and you know, distributors are seeing more pictures, and if they don't want yours, there's another one in you know in the queue. So, you know, but I've never gone. How many movies are made that either never get completed and that never get you know picked up, and they're sitting on a shelf somewhere? You know, I, I just never thought, I guess, to to even consider tallying that up. Uh, if we could, but... Um, but well, the, uh, the example I use is, um, and I'm you know guilty of this as anyone because I've written books on filmmaking, but there is a whole industry, and we're part of it right now in this conversation, promoting independent film. Right. And we tend to promote those things that have risen to the surface and uh, have reached some level of, if not success, at least notoriety. And it's sure. not unlike saying, hey, we've cured cancer, and you say, oh, really? And you say, yes, here's the examples of successful cancer-cured people. And you say, but how many, how many didn't you cure? How many died? Well, we have right. no idea because we, we didn't look at them. We only looked at the ones that were successful without even looking below the tip of the iceberg as to the ones that, that didn't make it. And there's a whole lot more of those than there are the ones you've heard of. Well, and I on, think on, Go ahead. Sorry. On, on my movie blog, <clears throat> I get contacted from filmmakers literally all over the world who want... Um, to promote their movie. And I, I do one interview a week on the blog. It's not that big a deal. Um, and the ones that make it on the blog are about 50-50. 50% you've heard of, kind of, if you you know have your finger in the pulse. And then some you've never, ever heard of and may never hear of beyond that blog unless you really dig deep. Um, because there's just a whole lot going on out there that there isn't time or audience to see right now. They just all can't. They all can't rise to the top. I'm going to make I'm going to make a, 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 maybe an obscure for some analogy here. In that, when I grew up, my favorite magician of all time or showman was Harry Houdini, mm-hmm. and Harry Houdini is a name that people still know today, even in our digital age of of, of, of people who are interested in Fred and you know and other things. They're still aware, and and he's referred to in TV shows and in newspapers and magazines all the time. His name is in the dictionary as a verb, as well as a noun. And uh, to do a Houdini or pull a Houdini is to extricate yourself from a tight situation. I mean, he's he's become synonymous with with so many things. Um, and as a youngster, you know, I read every book on Houdini. And as I got older, I still read books that come out. And the more I I read in later days, the more um, what we hear about is that he may have been the world's greatest promoter and and yeah. and PR and marketing person. In that, so much of what he did may not have actually even occurred. But mm-hmm. but he had been, and that and that is true today. And I think people miss that point so much. You know, there are thousands upon thousands and upon thousands of movies out there, and every now and then one or two break through, and they become these, you know, meteoric success, successes 
of which we can we should all perhaps uh, you know uh, aspire to. But but how they got there is not necessarily accurately portrayed in the same media that made them successful. In other words, they may we may be the same victims as filmmakers uh, as we are fans of Houdini in that these movies how they got where they got is not an accurate portrayal. In other words, you know, yeah, Blair Witch. Fairly so. Right, or, or paranormal activity or some of these. So uh, we, can, we can hope to have a hit like that, um, and, and I don't see why we shouldn't. Now, you mentioned at one point, like, for example, in IFFM back in 1994 that there were about 100 features, but only one became a recognizable name. Right, not recognizable to me, who at the time was... Um, pretty connected to that sort of thing. Actually, there were two that were recognizable because one of them was my feature, Beyond Bob, oh, okay. but the other, one, the other one was Clerks. And uh-huh. um, not to disparage Clerks, which is a funny little movie, but I think a lot of what attracted um, the, the buyers to Clerks was partially the story behind the making of it, um, and they, they knew they had a story they could, they could hook onto. And the guy who works in a convenience store shoots a movie there that night, <clears throat> at night, Gives up, goes to film school, and comes back and decides to use that money to make the movie. I mean, these are all really nice hooks, and and certainly stuff that you should be thinking about when you're making your movie. Not that you want to lie about it, um, but then to, then they continue to promote it as being this. And I forget what the actual number was. It was a very low number for the production of it. But in order to put that movie in the theaters, I'm guessing it was probably two hundred thousand dollars to clean it up and fix the sound and do all that stuff none of which is mentioned. And, and you get this sense that, oh, I see, I finished my movie, I take it to a festival, somebody likes it, and boom, it's in theaters. Well, no, there's a lot of money involved to get it there, and who's paying for that, and when do you get paid? I mean, the Blair Witch guys are a great example of that <clears throat> because they found a distributor who really liked their movie, and they signed a contract and went, great, we've got a, a hit on our hands, not realizing that they had signed away the whole movie and that they were required to do a sequel which they didn't want to do, obviously. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's you only tend to hear the good parts in these stories and not the bad parts, uh, which is not to say you shouldn't make your movie. You should just make the movie with the intent of trying to make the best movie you can and don't burn any of your bridges. Don't do things that will make it impossible for the movie to be released. For example, don't put in music you don't own. Don't forget to get release forms from all locations and all the actors. You know, all the basics, make sure you do that, but also don't invest money that you can't afford to lose. Excellent point. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Excellent point. That uh, some people just don't seem to remember. Um, well, all right. Well, you know, uh, the reason they don't remember is, one, <clears throat> they only hear about the successes. They don't hear about the failures. And if they heard about the failures, they'd be more likely <clears throat> to think twice about it. Um, and it's also it's seductive. You get caught up in it. Um, it's fun. You you see what happened to this other movie. You look at your footage. You think this is great, uh, and before you know it, you've you've made some uh, some unwise moves financially. It's it's really easy to get caught up in that. Well, I you know, and I, I think it's important that that people understand you know why we talk what we talk on on Movie Beat, and that is we want a realistic portrayal of the industry and of doing your projects. We don't want kind of you know the pie in the sky approach. At the same time, as I said, aspire to the to the best. It's the old saying, mm-hmm. shoot for the stars, and if you reach the moon, you've gotten further than you would have, or you've gotten farther mm-hmm. than you would have, you know, had you had your sights been set differently. And so I always suggest that people go out and, and make the impossible possible and, and have it happen, and, and that they can, but understand the odds, and, and don't be necessarily, you know, dissuaded by that. Uh, it just means you got to work hard, you got to work smart, you got to work efficiently, and uh, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. You want to build your success on the successes of others or model their successes so that you know what to do uh, in advance. I, I think also what we were talking about is why people like John Reese, who's a guest on the show and will be coming back, uh, you know, talk about and Sherry Candler and uh, and Peter Broderick and uh, so many people, and, I, and, and forgive me for omitting those, and myself and you talk about um, you know, the need to uh, gather your audience you know, at almost the inception of your movie uh, before you're in pre-production, and 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 you know, do as best you can with what they did with um, you know with other movies like District Nine or you know that kind of you know the stories that go along with that that uh, mm-hmm. you know create that social media grassroots campaign. 
right and 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 interact you know have a have a communication a two-way street with your audience nowadays you know and get people involved uh which i believe you know is part of the success of crowdfunding you know funding is that you know, people can become kind of almost intimately connected um perhaps intimate isn't the right word but uh, <laughs> they can become connected with the filmmakers in ways that they never could have previously yeah and people like to be connected to this sort of thing um they tend to get pretty bored when they're on the set, um, <laughs> not as magical as they thought, <clears throat> but they certainly like being part of the process. And if they're your investors, you have to make them part of the process. You have to keep them excited throughout that, that whole you know, long haul. My life has changed so much. The first professional set I was on, I think I was 18 or 19 years old when I you know, got into the Screen Actors Guild, and I, I had a day role in a movie. Uh, and I wanted to cry. It was to me, it was so boring and so tedious. Instead of being excited and thrilled, and I'd done lots of non-union movies prior to that, but I was just like, you know, this this is cool. I'm now going to be a SAG member, and it was like I'm just sitting around waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. But now, as I'm an older guy, uh, and uh, I do both in front of and behind camera, I just love being on the set. I just I love watching things come together. I love watching people solve problems and mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, in ways that I never did before. But for someone who's not in the business, it can be pretty, pretty boring. Oh, yeah, it is. Because you know, you're not seeing what's actually happening. You're not seeing, you know, the, the guy setting up lights, that might look sort of boring, but if you are interested in lighting, you see what it is he's actually doing, and that, oh, my, you know, if you can look at the monitor and go, look how different that is. Right. Now that he put that light behind her, that sort of thing. If you don't know what to look for, then it does seem boring. Well, very cool. Hey, so let me let me uh, uh, turn our attention to to um, some of your favorite low budget features and and why they mm-hmm. are what they are, and maybe we can discuss some of those in, in light of all uh, that we've been talking about. So, um, sure. Let me just kind of pull from the ether. Well, either that, yes, or, or I can um, mention a few. Well, speaking of the ether, uh, one of my favorite low budget movies. Uh, is John Carpenter's first film, Dark Star, okay, cool. which he made with, with the late Dan O'Bannon um, when they were students at USC. <clears throat> and there's a couple interesting things about this production. One, one they they did the thing that I think people should do as often as they can, which is they went somewhere where there's equipment and they just used it to the hilt. I mean, they everything they needed was at USC and wasn't necessarily being used. Um, and so they were able to make it very cheaply because everything was available to them. They also did everything themselves from uh, creating the models to building the sets to doing all that. So they're very involved in it. The mistake they made, <clears throat> which is a uh, surprisingly common mistake for people making a short, is that they made it too long, and nobody wanted it. Um, I believe their finished version of the short was about 50 minutes long, <clears throat> which is too long for a festival, but not long enough to be a feature. So there were sort of screwed because they couldn't really do anything with it. Festivals didn't want it because um, they don't want shorts that are over 30 minutes. And actually, more and more, I'm finding that the shorts that are um, popping up everywhere tend to be under 10 minutes. Um, and then no one wanted it as a feature, so they couldn't get their money out of it uh, until a producer, and I think it was Jack Harris, who was um, known for making kind of schlocky films, back then in the early 70s, um, said, if you can add 20, 30 minutes to this thing, uh, I'll release it as a feature. And one of the smart things they had done in structuring their short was using a thing called parallel action, which just simply means there's more than one thing going on in the movie with more than one character, which allows you to have things to cut away to, follow, cut away to second story. I mean, they do it on TV all the time with hour-long dramas having uh, A story, B story, C story. Um, but a lot of times features tend to just follow one or two characters together as they go off to do something. Uh, and they wisely had several characters in their spaceship, which is called Dark Star. So when it came time to create more action, they just needed to give each of them more stuff to do. Uh, so the, the end result was a finished feature of, I think, 88, 90 minutes, um, which felt like a feature because they had simply expanded on each of the separate stories. They weren't particularly happy with it because they felt it was the greatest short ever made at 50 minutes. Uh, but it's still a pretty good little feature at 90. Uh, and it was just really a smart way to do it. They uh, they just took what they had and added a little bit in each of the areas. And before you knew it, they had a feature. I don't know. Have you seen Dark Star? 
You know, I don't recall. I honestly, I'm going to guess that I haven't. But okay. uh, I think I've seen most that that John has done. So, it, uh, what's interesting? Well, a lot of interesting things about it. One is that uh, I think he looped a lot of the sound in it. In fact, I think Carpenter even does one of the voices in it, uh, which is smart because then it, it sounds like a more professional movie than the bad sound they had. But the thing that that um, that the co-writer, and I think he's even actually co-director on it, Dan O'Bannon really tried to do was to make the interior of this little ship, Dark Star, whose job it is to go around the galaxy blowing up unstable planets or unstable suns, um, to make the interiors cramped and as just full of stuff as possible. And I remember him saying to me after during our interview that after he saw the movie, he was really depressed because it, he spent a lot of time trying to make it look really dirty and overcrowded, and it didn't to the degree that he wanted. And then he went ahead and wrote Alien, uh, which Ridley Scott directed, and he said the first time I stepped onto Ridley's set, I went, oh, I see how you do that. Ridley really knew how to make a set look cramped and claustrophobic and full of stuff. It was a nice lesson for him to learn on how to do that, because it is, it is very hard to make a room look uh, overloaded with stuff in a movie. You know, anytime that I'm off on a shoot and you go to someone's house to shoot and they say, well, well we got to clean up the living room, you go, no, you, you really don't. You, re- you don't. Don't bother. <laughs> because it's not going to show up, it, and it just doesn't. Unless it's really over the top, it doesn't. So Dark Star is a really good example of a couple good lessons on parallel action, uh, to doing stuff yourself. It's a smart little movie. Wow, cool. Now, there's another one that you mentioned that I don't know of, and it was called Patty Rocks? Yeah, Patty Rocks was a movie, and I hesitate to talk about it just because it's a little bit hard to find. I know there's a DVD of it uh, in Europe, but it's not coded for U.S. machines, and uh-huh. it is available um, pretty readily on VHS, and maybe if enough people are interested in it, they will put out a DVD of it. Um, it's a movie that was produced here in Minneapolis, uh, and it's interesting on a couple levels. One, it's a sequel to a movie that the director, David Burton Morris, had made 12 years earlier that not a lot of people saw, although it did make a bit of a splash when it came out, called Loose Ends, and the idea of making a sequel to a movie that no one really had seen has a sort of perverse fun to it. <clears throat> and it's it's really very simple. The first, I'd say two-thirds of it, are uh, two guys uh, traveling uh, through a cold Minnesota night uh, because one of them has a girlfriend who's pregnant and he's going to try to talk her out of having the baby. And the last third of the movie is when they arrive at Patty Patty's apartment and it's that conversation. So it's, you know, in some ways it's very simple because it is maybe... I don't know, half of it is two guys in a car at night talking as they drive along, uh, and then the first quarter of it is them deciding to go on the trip in the last quarter or third. I don't know, I'm getting the percentages wrong, but it's it's pretty seemingly simple, although it actually isn't very easy to shoot in a car at night in the middle of winter. But a couple of things they did that I thought were really interesting was, one, they, they improvised the script, but not while they shot it. They did long improvisation rehearsal sessions with the actors, over a period of several months, sometimes here in Minneapolis, sometimes they go to Chicago, which they just sat with a tape recorder and let them talk as the characters, and then the director took it and transcribed it and edited and edited and edited, um, and then put it together as a script and sent it to the actors and said, okay, now learn this, which is a good way to use improvisation because it allows all the work to happen off camera and allows you to actually then tighten it up and make it flow uh, more dramatically. What was hard for the actors, at least according to one of them, was that you'd think if you'd improvised a speech and then someone typed it up and six months later gave it to you, that it'd be easy to just do it. But apparently he said it's actually even a little bit harder because it's not like a text that someone else has written. It's from him, but he had to find a way to put himself back in that situation and sort of relearn the feelings in order to give the speech. To so that was challenging. Uh, but it's a great little movie. It's uh, a good uh, example of how to take just a couple characters, put them in a, in a confined area, uh, and keep it interesting over the course of 90 minutes. Oh, very cool. So if you can find it, I would highly recommend it. It stars uh, Chris Mulkey, who you'll recognize immediately as a character actor who's been in everything from Twin Peaks to, I believe he's in Boardwalk Empire now. He is, and he's going to be a guest on the show coming up. So uh, oh. very cool. I love Chris. He's, well, make, he's a, make, he's make a, a great talent. And ask, him, ask him about Patty Rocks and about Loose Ends and about those experiences, because the director of it, uh, David Burton Morris, made Loose Ends, had some success in that, moved to L.A., and 
really wasn't able to make the Hollywood system work the way he wanted to work. And after about 12 years, he just came home and said, I want to do what I used to do, which was get people I like in front of the camera and make a movie. Wow. And uh, that's okay. what he did, yeah. Wow, cool. Well, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll hope to, and if I don't remember, hopefully somebody in the chat room will uh, remember that as well. John, I need to take a quick break here and uh, do a little station identification, tell people who's coming up, and remind everybody who is in the chat room, if you would, go ahead and retweet any of the points that you're learning today, uh, even as we discuss it. It's a, it's, a, it's a fun way to get more people involved while we do this live, but also so that they can tune in and listen to the archived or podcast shows uh, anytime, 24-7. And go ahead and become a friend or make us a favorite or follow us right where you are. And please, please, please do uh, leave comments after each show uh, in that area for comments because that's another way that new people uh, reading about the show can, can learn to join us. All right, my next guest coming up is Director uh, Peter Marshall. Peter has conducted our uh, first AD series on Movie Beat, and we are conducting a uh, director series as well. So uh, you're going to want to tune into that. And uh, then coming back is Christopher Lockhart. We uh, spoke with him just the other day about screenwriting secrets and how-tos and tips, and we're going to talk to him about producing. He and Julie Richardson, another guest on Movie Beat, fascinating woman uh, producer. You have to go in here. I think she has two interviews with us. Um, and if not, she's going to be doing more. But uh, they produced The Collector, and uh, they're going to be doing The Collector too. Then Jane Jenkins and Janet Hershenson are casting directors who you're going to certainly want to uh, tune in and listen to. Mitch Apley is a, a documentary filmmaker, so uh, join us for that, because documentary filmmaking is indeed uh, an art, and there are many people who I don't, uh, but I am right now producing a documentary, so uh, it's important for me to listen to my own guests and take their advice. Douglas J. Stewart is a screenwriter and motion picture director who will be coming up after that. Then we got the Film Courage group. Uh, that's David Brandon and, and Karen Warden. They're going to be coming back. Uh, David is a director of Night Before the Wedding, which is uh, starring uh, Gregor Collins and premiering this week in, in New York City. So if you're out there, uh, check into that. Eduardo Ballerini is in Boardwalk Empire, and he will be returning. Rick Overton is a comedian and actor, and um, he's coming back. And Diane Nabatov uh, is a producer who you're going to want to check into and listen to what she has to say. She's done a bunch of big movies. And then uh, John Reese will return, and he's the author of Think Outside the Box Office. So be sure to uh, stay tuned for upcoming guests. And, uh, and also thanks for sharing and for being here with us today in the chat room. My guest is Mr. John Gaspard, author of uh, Digital Filmmaking 101, Fast, Cheap, and Written That Way, and Fast, Cheap, and Under Control. And we are discussing um, aspects of filmmaking uh, from those books and some of his favorite movies right now. All right, John, thanks so much for hanging out while I did that. Um, other films that uh, that serve as examples, well, let me let me steer you to one that I know that you like and that probably many people, especially if they're horror fans, uh, like. And, and I, when I first saw it, thought it was an incredible breakthrough horror movie. It's one that uh, it certainly grabbed my attention in terms of the special effects and, and kind of twisted my brain around when it came out, and that was Reanimator. Yes. Yeah, Reanimator is a really fun movie if you want to laugh and scream pretty much at the same time. Um, Stuart Gordon, who made that movie, was a, a stage director um, in Chicago uh, at, I think, Steppenwolf. If I'm, maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, but I know that he worked on the original stage version of ER, which became ER, the TV show. Um, and he did a, a number of smart things with Reanimator. One, he was able to find uh, material that was in the public domain, in this case, uh, the Lovecraft stories. Um, and then he figured out a way to make it contemporary and, and, and do all that. Um, what he wanted to do was to make something that was both scary and funny. And so he looked at just about every horror film that had come out up until that point, and I, and I mean from Nosferatu up until that time, to see what the common elements were. Um, and obviously he had a mad scientist story, but he wanted to do it with a twist. What, what I really liked about what he, his, his frame of thinking in making films is that he goes back to his work as a play director, and he, he tells a story about how, um, because they were a nonprofit theater, uh, they were always trying to entice people to become patrons. 
one of their more wealthy patrons uh, came to every show they did, and she brought her husband, Lester. I think it was Lester. And um, Lester would invariably fall asleep during the show. And so he, as he was directing plays from that point on, he, for every show they did there, he thought, what do I need to do here to keep Lester awake? What do I need to do to just jack it up a little bit at this point or do something surprising there? And, and he's taken that same attitude into reanimator. What do you, how do you uh, jolt an audience when, when they might be coming a little too subdued? Um, a great example of that is the, just the very opening of reanimator. I don't know if you know it. Um, there's sort of a prologue with the Jeffrey Combs character at a different hospital working on something. It has nothing to do with the story, uh, except that he's working on his reanimation ideas, but none of the other characters are involved. But it's just this nice little three-minute jolt that snaps the movie right into place and keeps you kind of hanging on until the next interesting thing happens, which is, you know, after they get all the exposition out of the way. So it's a real smart way to think about it is, as you're making the movie, as you're writing the movie, as you're directing it and editing it, you know, what are you doing to keep the audience engaged? Are you doing something to keep the audience engaged, or are you doing something just because uh, you want to do it? Uh, I think William Goldman talks about killing your babies. I mean, well, well, Goldman is Faulkner. I'm sorry. But, you know, those very favorite moments that you love to have, are they really advancing the story? And I don't believe in doing killing them 100%, because I think sometimes you have to have stuff in there just for yourself. But be aware of what it's doing to the structure and to the flow of your work. Is it? Are you really engaging the audience, or are you just sort of just doing something because you want to do it and, and hope they stay with you? Which is fine, too, if you don't need to sell the movie and make money back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a great little film. The sequels are fun, but not um, not up to they're not up to not up to the original, uh, with the exception of any time Jeffrey Combs is on screen. Uh, he's an actor who just works on a whole different level than anybody else in that movie or actually any other movie. He's uh, he's just got a really interesting energy to him. Oh, absolutely, a- absolutely, um, very cool. All right, so uh, another. I just film. noticed. I just noticed that the FX guy on in the chat room said he was snuck into that film wearing a fake mustache. Right, with a fake mustache, and that's pretty funny. He, yeah, he was good for him. Yeah. Good for him. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so let's let's uh, choose another one, and, and I'll let you choose. Um, um, well, there's one that I came across that I had I sort of heard of. Um, when I was a kid, there was a uh, interview book called um, "Filmmaker is Superstar," I think, by Joe Gilmes. I think it is, and he had interviews with um, a lot of different filmmakers who who were just starting out. And um, there was mention of a movie called David Holson's Diary, which uh-huh. I read and didn't, didn't really understand what I was talking about. And then um, when I was doing uh, Fast, Cheap, and Under Control. Uh, there was going to be a chapter about Blair Witch, and so I was researching that. And if you start researching Blair Witch at all, you're going to run into um, a movie called The Last Broadcast, which is very similar in tone and structure. It's about a couple people who go into the woods following up on some sort of demon and disappear, and it came out, I think, a year before Blair Witch. Um, And so I sat down and watched Last Broadcast, which has got its own list of wonderful little traits in it that those guys did. Uh, and at the end, I believe they reference uh, David Olson's diary. So I, I tracked that down. And um, it's a documentary, supposedly, uh, shot in, I think, the mid-60s in New York uh, with a guy named L.M. Kit Carson. Uh, but you don't know that when you watch it. You think his name is David Holtzman. And he's got a 16-millimeter camera. And he is uh, just found out that he is going to be drafted and go to Vietnam, and he's decided to um, document what's going on in his life to try, to try to figure out why he's in the situation he is, where his girlfriend's left him, he's going to go have to go to the Army, um, try to figure that all out. And so he sets up a camera and films various encounters that he has um, over a period of days. It, it's not until year, years later, I guess, people found out maybe not years, but it actually was all made up that Jim McBride had directed it and he and uh, Kit Carson had written it. Uh, he actually shot a good bunch of it at one point and it was stolen out of the trunk of his car, so he ended up reshooting it. 
Um, but it's it's really interesting because it's a good record of you know New York in the 60s. Uh, Kit Carson is a, a very electric, magnetic performer, interesting to watch even to this day. Uh, and it's just it you really think, oh, he's actually doing this. He's a, this is actually his diary, uh, sort of born out of the work McBride had done on other documentaries and the the feeling he had that as soon as you introduce a camera into a situation, it's no longer real. It's no longer reality. And if that's the case, you might as well just make up your own documentaries. Um, the movie is surprisingly well-known for one that I don't think really was widely seen until the last, I don't know, five or ten years. Um, it, in fact, McBride said he's really surprised anyone has ever seen it because it really only showed up at screenings at uh, university campuses. But it's it's basically the first fake documentary uh it's intriguing it's interesting it's um there's some scenes in it that are um i, I don't know if i'd say legendary but there's one where he has an encounter with a, a transsexual who just happens to drive up next to him while he's filming uh there's a great speech by a friend of his about art that is pretty interesting uh, i think they criterion did put it out on dvd so it's you're able to find it now uh, but if, if, they, if they hadn't made that movie, we wouldn't have uh, necessarily Christopher Guest's movies or Blair Witch or Last Broadcast or all the fake documentaries since then. Uh, very cool. But I should say also to, to all of the listeners that um, the movies you're referencing are both in are, are in both of your books, Fast, Cheap, and Under Control, uh, you know, in more depth. Uh, than than some of the bullet points that we're discussing here, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. because you obviously you can go into them, and uh, and fast, cheap, and written that way, which also contains uh, interviews. I mean, with the uh, with the uh, filmmakers or the writers, I, I you know that you have Stuart Gordon, for example, um, discussing a reanimator, you know, and which I think mm-hmm. is fantastic. And and all of your books are available at Amazon. They are awesome. They are awesome. Indeed. Uh, no, and it's lessons learned from the greatest low-budget movies of all time, Fast Chief Under Control, and uh, top screenwriters um, on writing for low-budget movies in Fast Chief and, and written that way. Uh, uh, you know what? I, you know, I I, I I I want you to talk about one that uh, that I that I hope you don't mind me asking about, and that is um, one I have an affinity for because I was at AFI. I was part of the SAG Conservatory of Actors. So I was at AFI all of the time. Um, but I wasn't a student there when it was at the Doheny Mansion, and uh, and there was this weird guy in the stables named David Lynch, who at the time we just thought he was mad and and didn't pay much note. But uh, Eraserhead came out. In fact, a short that I did called Killer's Matinee used to play around the country. Has since been pulled. Uh, you can't see it. Uh, debuted uh, at at one of the theaters with uh, Eraserhead, mm-hmm. and uh, and and. And that was when I went and saw Eraserhead for the first time, which was after David had made it, and and just thought he was a madman. And of course, now I love everything that Lynch has ever has ever done—good, bad, right, wrong, or whatever. Uh, I'm a huge fan. So, would you talk about Eraserhead? Sure. Um, that was. It's another example of someone who is in a school setting, <clears throat> who wisely takes advantage of every piece of equipment and opportunity the school provides. Uh, AFI was very young at that point, and weren't, they weren't quite sure what they were doing. Uh, and he literally moved into the stable out back. I believe he lived upstairs, um, and they would shoot the film at night over the period of a couple of years. Um, in fact, he says rather famously there's one shot of Jack uh, Nance walking down a hall and opening a door, and he steps through the door two years later. Um, but because it was in black and white and because it was a pretty small movie, they were able to keep track of the continuity that way. But he would. He would set up, you know, they got one shot a night done. He was happy. Uh, I think he would work until 5 a.m., and then he had to stop because he uh, had a paper route. So he would go into his paper route and come back. And he did build this over a couple of years. I think with, uh, you know, he had shown the script to uh, the professors there. Uh, they didn't quite know what to make of it. They thought it was a short um, because of the way he'd laid it out. They didn't realize that it was a feature. Uh, and they pretty much left him alone just because they didn't really know what he was doing. And and then he came out with the finished product, which is uh, a little unnerving. By today's standards, not as unnerving as it was then, and was positioned as being a lot more unnerving than it actually is. 
Um, as with all Lynch films, the sound design is impeccable, and that's really what creates the, the level of creepiness in that movie. Uh, I mean, the imagery is certainly horrific at some points, but the sound design throughout is uh, will just kind of keep you on the edge of your seat. And yeah, he really pays attention to that. Yeah, he, he's amazing with sound. And um, he also, after I think after his first screening of it, uh, he went, he took it back to the stable, to his editing bay, and literally cut uh, a few big chunks out of it. And I mean, out of the final print, he just went chop, chop, and took them out. Because he sensed that um, he may have been happy with the pace, but as soon as he put it in front of an audience, uh, which you often learn when you're sitting with an audience, you can tell immediately whether or not it's working and when it's dragging and when things need to be picked up. Um, and he wasn't afraid of that process uh, because he was able to use the process to his own end as opposed to showing it to an audience and asking them what they thought and taking comments like that, which I think is kind of a waste of time uh, because it doesn't really matter if they liked this or like that. You really just need to get the sense of, of are they laughing at this point? Uh, does it feel like it's dragging? And then make your changes based on that, which I think is the same thing uh, Judd Apatow does with his films, where he does lots of screenings of audiences. I don't think he necessarily uses comment cards. He just needs to sit with an audience and get a sense of, okay, it's kind of dragging here, uh, they're not getting this, and go back and tweak it that way. I am never. I never fail to be, I guess, shocked or appalled at the number of filmmakers who I have known through the years who fail to uh, screen their movies for an audience and and allow themselves to incorporate incorporate you know some form of feedback whether it's comment card or just audience reaction um, I uh, also never fail to be shocked with the number of filmmakers who go it's my movie that's the way it is and I don't care if anyone likes it or not <laughs> you know, it's, it's well, yeah. There, I mean, Woody, Woody Allen is that way, I believe. Yeah. Um, he does it the way he wants. And you know, it was it was harder to do that in the old days because you can't show an audience something that isn't essentially finished. They're not right. going to fill in the gaps, uh, and which is also true of just about anybody you send your movie to. You know, if you get some distributor saying, "No, you can send me a rough cut. I've been in the business for years. I can I can see what it's going to be." No, they can't necessarily. Um, but nowadays, it is much easier to create a pretty finished-looking piece, run that by an audience, then take it back to your computer and make the tweaks that you want. In the old days, and like I say, with, with Lynch, he literally took the release print and chopped the part, out the parts he didn't want. I think Kubrick did the same thing after the first public screening of 2001. He went back and just took out some big chunks because he realized, yeah, I like it, but it's just not helping it's easy to do that now, and uh, I really think people should. I don't think they should send out comment cards and, and listen to mm -hmm. that. Right. Because um, you're always going to find a vocal minority that didn't like something. And the fact that they didn't like the one thing doesn't mean they don't like the movie. It just means they don't like that one thing. Uh, a friend of mine and uh, a former acting coach of mine and guest on Movie Beat, Eric Morris, included in his book, No Acting, Please, back in the 70s, and I don't know if it was original with him or, you know, if he took the P.T. Barnum quote and, you know, and, and revamped it, but said, essentially, you know, you can please 50% of the people 50% of the time, and the other 50% you can never please, so you just got to go ahead and please yourself. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. So, you know, to some extent, I mean, I understand that, but we, typically we're making a movie for an audience, and we want to impact them in a particular way, and, and we don't just want to be this selfish auteur. But some people get away with it. I mean, some people say, "This is my offering, like it or not." Um, I, I suppose you could offer, you could argue that Lynch may be that way. I suspect in that his films aren't really uh, commercial successes in in many cases, and they aren't really mm -hmm. linear storytelling that that anyone can really put their handle on. They're more of a, an incredible visual roller coaster ride right. with, you know, an amazing sound. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's something that, it's an experience, but it's not really a story that you can hang your hat on. Well, yeah, and I think the, the classic example of that is Twin Peaks, yeah. which I don't think he ever thought was going to get beyond the pilot stage. And if you've ever seen the European version of it, he literally tacks an ending on to the end of the pilot, which tells you, who the killer is, which I won't give, give that away. It's right. different than the final version. And then when he had to do it as a series, even with the help of Mark Frost, man, it was 
uh, you know, it wasn't, it didn't really fit what he was doing. To tie it up was not what he was doing, as opposed to, you know, a filmmaker who is doing something that has a, a, a story that they want to get across. It's very legitimate to show it to an audience and try to get a sense of are they getting it or not. Uh, a great example of that is uh, a little movie called The Boy and His Dog. Uh, which with Don Johnson. Is, and Don Johnson uh, is one of the best low-budget science fiction movies ever made. And there's a, a the ending of it is um, difficult, difficult in the sense that some people get it and some people don't. And the, the director of it, L.Q. Jones, I believe spent quite a lot of time trying it out in different audiences and finally came to the conclusion that, you know, at this point in the dialogue, 25% of the people get it. And then... At this point, 50% have gotten it, and he said, and he just had to live with the fact that 25% are just not going to get it, and he doesn't, he didn't want to have to do what you'd have to do for 100% of the people to get it. He thought, I'll just leave it to they can turn to the person next to him and say, what was that? And the guy said, oh, you know, if you haven't seen a boy and his dog, uh, it's great on so many levels, uh, particularly being the voice of the dog, the voice of blood. Yes. Uh, an actor named Tim McIntyre, and his vocal work and the work of the dog, who I think was trained by the same guy who did Benji. Um, it's just one of the, it, I mean, literally, the, they should have been nominated for an Academy Award, the, the combination of the dog and Tim McIntyre's voice, because you believe that the dog is talking to Don Johnson, and it's all done telepathically, so there's no moving in the mouth, but definitely uh, get the movie A Boy and His Dog. It's just a great little movie. Oh, absolutely. Well, let me ask you this. There's a few. We have, you know, all of maybe 12 minutes, uh, and there are some lessons I know. And you know what? We're going to have you back. And what I want to do, two things, is, is cover more of the lessons that filmmakers tend to forget. And two, I'd like to kind of go through Digital 101 uh, filmmaking mm-hmm. and and select some of the chapters out of there and discuss, you know, uh, you know, per chapter some of the some of the points that you make. Uh, but this is an excellent discussion on, on, for me on so many levels regarding these films. And there's so many great films that you talk about. You've got Little Shop of Horrors, Caged Heat, The Return of the Sea Caucus 7, Carnival of Souls, Night of the Living Dead, Monty Python, The Holy Year, El Mariachi, Clerks, um, you know, Eraserhead, Capote, Repo Man, Metropolitan, uh, Love Letters, Suburbia, uh, you can count on me, Living in Oblivion. I mean, Roger Dodger, there's just so many movies that, that, that are in your books and that you discuss. Um, but let me ask you this. Let's go to the um, uh, to this point. And, and uh, I, I know that you use another movie, Body Heat, for example. You never mm-hmm. stop writing. Okay. On yeah, the set or um, Body Heat's interesting because I had um, uh, a conversation uh, with the woman who edited that film and one of my first questions to her was, because I love, I love Body Heat. I mean, it really seems like mm, a perfect little movie. You know, and Kasdan was at his prime back then doing that stuff. Uh, and I said, I said, and it was interesting because I was, using, I was teaching screenwriting at the time, and I said I would use Body Heat as an example of a, of a great script. And one of, the, one of the ways I did that was uh, I would ask the students to sit in class with me. They would watch Body Heat, and we would read along because it helps to demystify the screenwriting process if you can see what Lawrence Kasdan wrote and what's on the screen and, oh, look how short that line of dialogue really is. Look how little dialogue. I mean, it really helps to watch it and to read it at the same time. And she said, oh, that's interesting. How did you do that with the shooting script? And I said, well, that was just exactly the point. The shooting script of Body Heat has pretty much all the elements that are in the finished movie, but they are in such radically different order. I mean, radically different order, that in order to do it with the class, I had to literally take the shooting script and cut it and paste it in the correct order of the finished movie, which is what she and Lawrence Kasdan did in the editing room, which was they they put the movie together where it was written and went, oh, well, that kind of works, but it doesn't really work. And then they spent months just moving things around, moving, cutting this, adding that, moving around. I don't think they did any reshooting. They just took what they had. But in her mind, they were rewriting the script one last time. <clears throat> and it is um, it is radically different from what he wrote, although it is exactly the same lines and the same scenes. They're just in different order, and it changes things uh, quite a bit, which is why when people say, oh, you know, I always say read screenplays. You have to read screenplays. That's one of the best ways to learn to write them. I always say read a screenplay. Don't read a transcription, because a transcription doesn't help you virtually at all. 
that, I mean, someone has very kindly sat down and listened to the whole movie and typed it out, and that's great. But what you really want to get is one of the shooting scripts and read that because that will show you what they had on paper and what they started with, and that shows you how long is a scene. And, you know, the biggest thing is dialogue. People have no idea how little dialogue there actually is in movies and that they don't have, you don't have huge speeches in movies, and if you do, it's kind of a big deal. Um, so it, when you look into scripts, always look at a shooting script. And, and, in, and in the, the mind of Kasdan, this was the last chance to write the movie, and they, they really radically did it in it. Well, it turned out fine, I guess, because it's a great movie. Wow, very cool. Now, uh, on top of that, you have another point that I, I want to emphasize, because if you're going to keep writing, you also say there's, there's no shame in reshooting. There is not. Um, uh, and probably the best example of that is Woody Allen, who always saves a big chunk of, um, not a big chunk, but a reasonable chunk of his budget um, to reshoot. Um, sometimes a little bit. Um, for example, in Annie Hall, there were a couple scenes that they, uh, they, once they once they did the edit, and this is, of course, Annie Hall being another example of finding a movie in the editing because it really wasn't Annie Hall when they shot it. It was a much larger thing, and they kept paring it away and paring it away and deciding the most interesting part of what they shot was the Annie Hall story. So we had to go back and shoot a couple little transitions to tie things together. Um, but then you have a movie like September, which I think he shot... He reshot entirely after he shot it. So you have those two extremes. Um, but yeah, it, to assume that you're going to get everything you need, that's nice. It's a nice assumption. Um, but if you close the door to that, then I think you're, you're closing off uh, a good creative venue there, which is to look at what you have and go, all right, well, all this works. What more do we need to make it all tie together? And go back and, if you can, you know, shoot the stuff you need to make it all work. There's you know, I, no, and and I will say just in personal example, as a personal example, I'm producing a movie called. I, I'm, I'm one of the producers. There's also there's the director who's also producing, and, and another gentleman, but the Spade County Massacre, and uh, it's a you know an independent low budget horror movie that I think you'll like. I mean, that people will like once they see it. Um, but we have we technically wrapped the movie long ago and then we have spent months in in reshoots and uh i have to shoot some more this week because i'm also starring in it um but uh you know it's it's we're as the producer and the director and 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 because i'm also acting in it you know we get together and go let's just do it you know while we can let's just make it look better rather than settling there or, or stopping there and and uh and uh, you know, take it from uh, from 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 the the vantage point that as long as we can do it now, uh, we we probably will have fewer regrets later. Well, exactly, and it doesn't have to be something big. Um, I mean, something uh, even a movie with a certain amount of budget behind it, uh, Usual Suspects. Uh, the opening of it, uh, when we we meet or don't meet Casusose on the boat, and he lights a cigarette and walks away and drops the match and all that. Several of those shots, uh, they'd forgotten to get or didn't know they needed them and just went out in the backyard and shot them uh, one night while they're editing. They needed a close-up of the lighter. They needed something like that. Um, it's just understanding that just because you're done shooting doesn't mean you're really done shooting. And it can be something major, like a, a scene that connects things together. In the case of Annie Hall, that's the scene where he sneezes on the cocaine. The only purpose of that scene is to tell us we're going to Los Angeles, but he put a joke in there, so you think it's about the joke. But it's really about, oh, Annie and Alvy are going to Los Angeles because he needed that transition. Or something as small as a close-up that helps to clarify what you're doing. Yeah, There's nothing wrong with it. And with equipment today, how tough is it to just grab your camera and go out and shoot the shot you need? Absolutely, absolutely. And in my case, the director contacted me and said, oh, i got to get more close-ups of you, and as an actor, i got to go, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome, man. You know, get, get some good ones. Make me look good. You know, but uh, but no, it, it it is true. I I think a lot of people, uh, we're with this particular feature. We are we have the luxury of being able to do this. We we also have you know our filmmaker friends who go you know you know get get it done. You know, stop already. You know, be. But right. we we've made the decision to go back. You know, a couple of times now and and clean some things up or reshoot and and. Um, I'm always arguing for paring stuff down and cutting dialogue out, and, he, and the director loves to add more dialogue. And 
They're all like, well, you're an actor, Rex, you should love this. And I go, no, 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 just cut it out. I'll look better if I don't talk as much. So, um, you know, and, and keep it tighter. So uh, hopefully hopefully, when it's ready, we'll, we'll let you all know and, 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 and we'll make a splash with it. But, but enough about that. Uh, the point being is, is that the ability to reshoot and budget for reshoot often is things that people don't consider, just like they don't budget for PR and marketing and distribution costs for festival runs after uh, they get their movie made. And so suddenly they're done with their movie and they can't get it out of post or they can't afford to get it into festivals or they can't afford to go with their movie to festivals because they never thought to include that in their budget. Exactly. And another thing that often gets left out or gets stolen from while shooting is uh, doing a really sophisticated sound mix at the end. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which, which can elevate your movie from sounding like a home movie to a professional film if you have it in the hands of a of a good sound mixer. You know that uh, I am a huge proponent, of, and I, as I know you are and, and, and many others, of, of excellent sound because uh, we do forgive picture more readily than we forgive sound. And I think, you know, now that I'm older, I don't hear, I mean, too many years of loud rock and roll in my car and at concerts and things like that, I don't hear the way I did when I was a teenager. And so, you know, if the sound is bad, it's just bad. And and I don't want to have to, you know, on my TV, if, if uh, a low-budget independent movie has even bothered to close caption, um, I don't want to have to play the closed captions. But sometimes I'm sitting there just appalled at how awful uh, the mm-hmm. sound is on, on screeners that I get or even released, you know, well, let's say that they've come out on DVD at least, you know, or that the, they may not have gotten a theatrical release, but how bad the sound is and that people don't take time to invest in good sound design. I, I think that is so crucial, and I'm glad that you mentioned that before I forget because that is, you know, and we've had guests on the show, Patrick Giraldi and, uh, and um, Clancy Troutman and Dave West and other people just talk about the importance of, you know, of great sound design and great sound mix. Yeah, it's it's half the equation right there. Absolutely. Um, I want to let you take the next couple minutes and just talk about anything you want to talk about. We're literally out of time, but uh, I don't want to have the last word. I want you to have the last word, and then we're going to remind the listeners and the chat room people that you will come back. We will schedule that uh, to have you back and discuss, as I have said, other uh, elements that uh, you know you are so generous in, in bringing to the attention of filmmakers through your books and, and, and through the work that you do. Yeah, I think that'd be so, fun to just go through uh, Digital Filmmaking 101 and we can just talk about some of the key the key things that people forget to do. Um, otherwise, I would just direct people uh, to the blog, Fast, mm-hmm. Cheap Movie Thoughts. Um, if there's filmmakers out there who have finished movies, all done, all finished, um, that they'd like promoted on it, I, um, we are uh, we only go out once a week so that's only four or five blogs a month, and one of them is always a, I don't want to use the word celebrity, but a better-known filmmaker. Um, so there's not a lot of spaces, and I do get a lot of requests. Um, but if someone wants to send me an email about their film, I'd be happy to consider putting it on there and, and see what we can do to help promote it. Fantastic. And um, and the blog address is fast? Uh, Go ahead. I just think it's probably simplest just to Google fast, cheap movie thoughts. Because I know it's, I think it's fastmoviethoughts.blogspot.com, but it's just much easier just to go fast. Fast, fast cheap movie thoughts and, and find yeah. find it that way. All right, excellent. And and we'll come back also with some of the uh, filmmaker lessons that uh, filmmakers forget about, and um, and we'll uh, do some more of those as reminders. But John, you you have been again a, a fantastic source of information and a fantastic. Uh, resource for filmmakers just everywhere. I appreciate you being here today. Uh, I hope you have a fabulous rest of your week, uh, and I can't wait until I have you back. That'll be thank great. you, thank you so much uh, for. Sh- oops, thank you so much for sharing today. All right, thanks, Rex. We'll talk later. All right, man. Have a great one. Thank you. Uh, Mr. John Gaspard, again, author of uh, n- a number of books, uh, Fast, Cheap, and Written That Way, Top Screenwriters and Writing for Low-Budget Movies, Fast, Cheap, and Under Control, uh, Lessons Learned from the Greatest Low-Budget Movies of All Time, and Digital Filmmaking 101 uh, by Dale Newton and John Gaspard. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk about uh, Digital Filmmaking 101 at another time. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for being in the chat room. And thanks for tweeting about us, for following us on Twitter. My Twitter address is Rex Sykes Movie BT. That's Rex Sykes Movie BT. That last 
word is abbreviated, so please do come and follow and send followers my way. I always like to reach out and attract as many filmmakers uh, as possible because, uh, after all, it is about my guests. It's about them being able to share their expertise with uh, filmmakers, those both seasoned and those new, and uh, and being able to reach them. So when you make us a favorite, when you follow us, when you follow us on Twitter, when you retweet about it, when you post it on on Facebook, on my wall or your wall or somebody else's, when you reach out, phone somebody, or email, or use your favorite social media means to uh, to spread the word, uh, we are so appreciative, and I am certainly appreciative. Again, the main website is rexsykes.com, uh, and you can subscribe right there at the welcome page. Everybody, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for your support. If you have questions for my guests, always remember that you can send them by email at the contact page of the main website. You just go there and you click on contact, and that will open up an email window. And in the window, you put the name of the guest in the subject header and the questions in the body of the letter, and uh, and you fire them off. And then when my guests show up, you can uh, we can ask the questions uh, on the air. So you can send them in advance. All you have to do is go to uh, RexSykes.com, go to the interviews page, look through the uh, the guests there, and uh, and you know click on their link, their biography, find out when they're when they're going to appear, and then uh, fire some questions if you can't be in the chat room. So uh, I appreciate it so very much. You can uh, also you can join Rex Sykes Movie Beat friends at Facebook and. Uh, Somebody asked me if I just called someone Chris, and I sure hope not. But if I did, I apologize. It's John Gaspard is our guest, and uh, I appreciate it. <laughs> when anybody in the chat room tells me I may have done something uh, and corrects me, that is fantastic. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. All righty. Again, Mr. John Gaspard has been our guest today, and I want to thank you for tuning in and for listening and for spreading the word. Everybody. I want you to have a fabulous day, make your movies, complete your projects, and until we meet the next time, uh, my guest coming up uh, the next time is uh, someone you're going to definitely want to hear from, so be sure to tune in. Till we meet the next time, that's a wrap.